Welcome to another episode of The Art Salon. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and share it with your friends on social media. To keep up with our latest guests and announcements, follow us at The Art Salon on Instagram. If you would like to support the podcast, please visit the support section on the Anchor website where you can contribute to the podcast once or by setting up recurring donations. Today we have two guests, Joshua Banbury and Kevin Sherwin. They are now just launching their latest project, Forgotten Folklore, and I'm having them on to talk about it. Kevin and I knew each other a long, long time ago as children, essentially. Uh, We met at summer camp, and he was always an amazing, amazing classical guitarist. He has since gone into a great career in Baroque music. Joshua is a new friend uh, with a great background in opera. But their project, Forgotten Folklore, is about folk music from the United States of America, and they did it in an incredibly interesting way. I would like to read a little bit of the description. Um, I think this was written by Joshua about the project. So here we go. Forgotten Folklore was recorded at the height of the 2020 pandemic, the height of my battle with solitude and mental health, and the height of extreme political unrest. Recorded in partnership with my great colleague and fellow folk nerd, Kevin Sherwin, it was inspired by our desire to honor and expand on the folk tradition on America's forgotten communities. It is a tribute to my Texan ancestry dating back to 1830, Kevin's Eastern European lineage, home, and forgotten folk. This project was funded by a generous grant from the Young Arts Foundation. It features new arrangements of old tunes, traditional songs, and original compositions. Here's a little history about the project. In summer of 2020, I reached out to Kevin to explore the idea of developing this peculiar collection of recordings, hoping it would change the world in some small way. We applied for a grant from Young Arts and received enough to record. I had just moved back to my hometown of Austin and was looking for any chance to continue singing. Folk music has always grounded me. I had always wondered why the sound of a banjo or fiddle stirred something inside me, especially considering I was raised mostly in the suburbs. This summer, I discovered that I am a 7th generation Texan, so I suppose that's where my love of bluegrass and the like comes from. Thousands of folk songs have faded into obscurity, simply because they were sung by poor black and white folk. I increasingly feel that it is my responsibility to share this music and the stories of the nation's forgotten communities. Still, I wonder why. He goes on to explain his love for bluegrass music and folk music, and I encourage everyone to go to his website, joshuabanbury.com to read more about it. During our talk, we talk about performance practice, which I consider to be an incredibly loaded term that even though that movement comes to it in good faith, has transformed in academia into a completely different thing. It is now a practice of orthodoxy. It is no longer an exploration of the past and a period of discovery. It is more about rules and regulations and often yields a very, very, very distilled art form that doesn't quite reflect the realities of the time it's supposed to to embody. This is different than what I heard when I listened to Forgotten Folklore. I was very taken by the amount of research that had evidently gone into it, but also how alive it felt in a way that performance practice should feel in the way that Gardiner's recordings in in the period where the movement had started had felt. So I think this is a phenomenal exploration. I really encourage everyone to go seek out the EP, which is now available. And with that, I leave you these two magnificent people, and I look forward to seeing what they keep doing together in their careers. All right, awesome. 
So I listened to your project a little bit uh, with the folk songs, songy sounding stuff. It's awesome, actually. Oh, wow. Um, oh, wow. So, like, so what what are, what are you guys been up to? Like, how did you guys come up with this project? Uh, obviously, a lot of people won't know what I'm talking about. So why don't you describe it a little bit? And yeah, Kevin, this is your friend. Yeah, I guess I could kick it off a bit. Um, well, Josh and I met a few years ago, um, playing a playing a show together, and I was playing guitar, and he he was singing, and we were doing kind of jazz and theater kind of music. Um, so very far, I guess, from the kind of folk music that uh, we were both very passionate about, um, and recorded for this album. And uh, soon after that, Josh had completed. Joshua had completed a play about um, uh, that used folk music and folk culture as a theme, but set in a contemporary setting. And um, I went to this reading, and then we were talking more about some of these early pioneers of folk music, um, and we we're talking about our passion for early recordings of this music. And it just kind of got kickstarted that way that we both had this shared interest in to what I think general public public today is um, obscure uh, folk music artists of the you know forties, fifties, and sixties in America. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and um, um, yeah, we. I mean, I think we started. We did that gig at the Met Museum. When was that, Kevin? In two thousand eighteen. Yeah, I think so. I believe. Yeah. And um, we kept in touch, and Kevin kept. He worked at the the, the Yale Music Library, and he would send me um, different. Uh, uh, I guess uh, I don't know if you would call them like a, just I guess sheet music from yeah. like, all kinds of random folk songs, and um, we nerded out over that for like a year. And the pandemic happened. I left New York City, came home to Austin, Texas, and felt it was an appropriate time to start understanding my fascination with folk music because I don't have any idea where it came from originally. It kind of sprang up in 2017. I was living in Baltimore um, in Mount Vernon, and I fell in love with the dulcimer and Gene Ritchie and that whole lineage. And um, I became really curious about what is American folk music and who gets to claim American folk music and what really, um, like what is American folk music made out of? And after doing a lot of research, I like realized that it's, I mean, a lot more black than I thought, just to put it frankly, <laughs> um, which was just such a revelation because I was able to think about my own sisters in Texas. I'm a, I believe seventh or eighth generation Texan and think about like what kind of music they were internalizing what kind of music they were sharing with one another aside from um, uh, spirituals which um, I studied classical voice for a while and I find that when you're studying classical voice as a black singer you're often encouraged to um, um, to do spirituals like to honor your people but I, I feel like there was just so there's so much more black people were singing so many different kinds of songs and songs about love and motherhood and family um, so that's why I started to like hyper um, fixate, I guess, on this this idea. Yeah, I I I actually really want to go back to that 
uh, in a second. But like before we get into that, I just let me ask you guys something like about like folk music. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do I phrase this? So there's a book that I quote a lot from T.S. Eliot called the Notes Towards the Definition of Culture. And it's interesting because he's like diagnosing what's going to happen with the arts in Europe uh, after mm-hmm. the Second World War. And he turned out to be like pretty right about some things. Hmm. And some of the things he says are kind of unsavory to us because we grew up like in a um, place that obviously disdains classes and elitism and all sorts of things. But he was kind of saying mm-hmm. like, it's not necessarily a bad thing that these things are crumbling, but like what effect are they going to have on the arts? And I'm just bringing this up because he comes up with a concept that's very fascinating to me about, like, he calls them this. I don't necessarily agree with what he calls them, but the concept I think I like, which is high art versus low art. And what he means is, like, Mm, these these are both very good, important arts. Like, they both can define a culture. But what he's basically saying is, like, a place that brings you flamenco can't get you Paradise Lost. And that doesn't mean that Paradise Lost is better than flamenco. They're equally va- va- valuable and vibrant and define a culture. But it's hard to uh, assume that one will give you the other. Likewise, high culture can't get you kind of like that raw uh, connection to like the people, <laughs> so mm-hmm. to speak. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I'm kind of curious in that regard, like, you guys both come from like a very uh what you would consider like a high sphere of culture both from yale and you have a background in opera if i'm not I'm wrong not right? from yale no um, no but you, yes, you have I, a background in opera with yeah. uh, joshua am i am i right yeah opera, so jazz. i'm fascinated with that kind of thing that's kind of shifting now that you guys can like look at something like folk music and treat it very seriously without well and with what i listen to without kind of destroying its essence it seems like mm. you guys both respected what it is that's it. Uh, Sweet. we really yeah. appreciate that that's, that's so definitely within what we were intending um yeah so walk yeah, me through uh, like how how you come to that because i feel like a lot of the times when like we in the quote-unquote ivory tower look at like what, what i just would describe as low art mm-hmm. but it isn't you know folk art or like something so old that we don't really understand the roots of our most people's intention is to like make it something it wasn't anymore. And yeah. how how did mm-hmm. you guys treat it so that it wasn't a museum piece? Because what I heard didn't sound like a museum piece, mm. but also very much in the spirit of where that music should live. Mm. Oh, great questions. Uh, yeah, I'm happy to just dive in. I, yeah, just going back to what I said about being in, in school, um, I studied classical voice from the age of 15 to about 20, 23 um, every year. And I was always really frustrated with why I would have to sing German leader or like learn French art songs. And, you know, that that was the only thing that was considered art song usually is European classical music. And I really, with my career, I really hope to do recitals that include folk music um, as American art song and presented in the same way that it would at a, a classical recital. Um, and I think in terms of, I, of the sound and having it not be a museum piece, I was really um, adamant about trying to continue the tradition of folk music and not just regurgitating 
um, what was done 100 years ago, I really try to think about the sounds and the kind of music that I internalize every day and figure out how it can just work its way into what we're doing now. Um, I listen to a lot of Carnotic music um, that heavily influenced a lot of my melismas and things like that in the songs. Um, and uh, yeah, a lot of jazz, I think, influences phrasings that um, uh, a lot of the phrasings that Kevin, Kevin and I have done. Um, yeah, and thinking about, I, get, I think with this project, first and foremost, it's always been about history. Um, and I've always thought about it more, not as like a, an album or an EP, but almost like an essay. Hmm. Um, yeah. Can you talk more about that? What do you mean by that? Oh, an essay? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, in the, it, I, and it's weird because I'm trying to like figure out what this really means, but I think I, I, I often don't approach music like for fun, if that makes any sense. I really uh, usually approach music through like a historical lens and like trying to figure out like what were specific communities singing like, or like how did they use their voices and like why did they use their voices in this way and how did they, um, that's what I was trying to explore with this project, I think, in the songs that I chose. Um, it wasn't really for entertainment. Um, I think it was more to make a, a statement and to more almost like a study, because uh, it was really, really interesting changing my, my technique. And most teachers would say that I shouldn't do that. But um, I did change a lot of my technique to sort of really understand, like, even the breathing and things like that that make folk music so um, distinguishable. Kevin was saying in an, uh, another interview we had about like bending notes. I don't know if you want to talk. Yeah, about totally. Um, yeah, and I I loved the prompt of the, from T. S. Eliot and this this concept. <laughs> well, you and can I, go. You can you and just so you know, like the point of because. Yeah. Like the way I, I ask these things, I'm genuinely interested in. You guys can say I don't agree yeah. with that or hey, fuck you. But, <laughs> but that's just what it made me think of. So, you know, whatever is on your mind, go for it, Kevin. Yeah, totally. Well, uh, what Josh is ta Josh was talking about, that there's, there's so much detail that goes into the, quote, performance practice of this music that really makes it work that makes it communicate the aesthetic, what the text is about, the feeling. Um, there's so much performance practice in terms of the intonation, uh, the phrasing, the sense of timbre that uh, we were both really sensitive to um, in our research and listening to recordings, but then really, as Joshua was saying, um, we both adapted our technique um, a lot to make those sounds. And I don't know, like some of it was conscious, like the way I was playing steel string guitar, I think I'm able to just um, hear it and go at it and try and get the sound I want because of classical background and classical technique. There's that versatility. I don't know, Joshua, do you, do you feel that? Like you have that versatility to try, you know, to research this breathing and all of that, you know, mm. that classical technique maybe just gave you that breadth of options 
I, you know, I don't I'm, know sometimes I'm I'm that optimistic and other days I'm like if I didn't have all this training not. like singing would be actually a lot more fun a bit more <laughs> fun yeah and maybe more direct yeah um, but no I totally understand what you're saying I don't think I would yeah have a lot of the skills I do have today yeah there. in the the high art low art distinction despicable yeah, I'm not like I'm not the biggest fan. I'll, I, the thing that I agree with with that is that there are different kinds of art mm -hmm. that do very different things. And like what, you know, European, you know, kind of like the kind of Eurocentric pre-World War II view is like high art leads you to a transcendent experience that oh no i should clarify think... i should clarify oh, yeah. because uh, you know i i've always thought that that was a very poor choice of words from his point of view because what sure. he explains is actually exactly what you're saying he's actually mm -hmm. trying to get away from this idea oh yeah that paradise lost is better than yeah. oh yeah than i don't know a rap battle he's exactly trying yeah. to say that but what he's mm -hmm. also trying what is to pa uh, paradise lost it's is like one of the highest uh achievements in poetry from british uh it's john milton's like great poem about heaven and hell so it's like oh, his, okay okay his re he, he like imagines a world where the devil has just been cast out of eden mm. and it's like he makes characters of all these people oh my, uh, okay. and it's a beautiful poem and so what he's saying is like a society that can create that can't create uh limericks right mm -hmm. but that what he's exactly trying to say is that doesn't mean one is better than the other. It's just yeah. our obsession with trying to justify different types of art is is making us ruin the reason these different types of art work. So, like, for example, mm -hmm. folk music in different parts of the world works because it is a folk music. The moment that you try to, like, put it uh, in a context that doesn't belong... Mm -hmm. like naturally it, it it might not destroy it but it cheapens it so like it, this yeah, happens a lot so with cool. like jazz you see like amazing concerts at bars and that's where that should live i mean every time i go to jazz concerts if there's a drink in your hand and there's a little bit of noise and the energy in the room is smaller it works and every time i've seen it at like disney hall in la it just feels like like mm -hmm. uh mm -hmm. this doesn't belong here similarly like yeah. i've seen like yeah. classical musicians that go dance. and play like string quartets in bars and it's like i think i think you think you're cool but i don't yeah. like <laughs> no i want to have a conversation like... yeah and, and so that's kind of what i that's what he means it's actually exactly what you're saying kevin it's not Got this, it. yeah. this div mm -hmm. but but more the idea that like by trying to from either the low part what he calls or the high part to yep. try to change your art to match the other you're yep. going to probably tear something asunder which is like why I find this, what you guys did very interesting because I was listening to it and I'll be perfectly honest, I didn't have much thought about like what I was getting into. But I was listening to it and I was like, oh, they like, here's, I, I don't know you, Joshua, but I, I read up on what, you know, your background. It's like, okay, so here's this like opera trained singer and mm -hmm. Kevin who mm -hmm. like, you know, Juilliard pre-college and like Yale, like it couldn't be any more uh, yeah. classical yeah. arts, right? But you guys treated this very well and like to the point of Thank performance you, practice yeah I, I feel like that's such a loaded Thank thing you. in in the classical arts world because performance practice has often become like exactly the opposite of what you guys are talking about you guys are talking about like researching trying to get in the mindset being on honoring the work and a lot of performance practice that i've experienced has been like 
we used to play this with his instrument you know <laughs> yeah well <laughs> yeah for sure well so like my you know like i'm associate director of the american baroque orchestra mm -hmm. i play baroque uh -huh. guitar you know so like you know mm -hmm. i i love as a conductor like i'm obsessed with romantic era performance practice so i'm like digging into like you know what tchaikovsky's friend how he played it and the funny thing is i approach that the exact same way as listening to these folk recordings and there's an equal amount of detail and nuance that they had to nail basically to make it work this kind of a side note though yeah i don't know like i'm just like it's like i think you know it's such a good question because i think joshua and i like made this thing that um applies like our backgrounds musically to this folk form because we made new arrangements we made new compositions um and uh how do you put it uh oh gosh i, I feel like i lost the train of thought <laughs> um the oh this is what it is like for me and i sensed you know you were doing the same thing um we're just going to the text going to the music and it's like what is this like about what's the core of this about like how do i as an artist relate to that relate to that feeling that story and like how do you bring that out the first track we did was the one that's um the last main track on the album brightest and best and that was the first one that joshua was like okay let's arrange this and joshua like that that's joshua's arrangement and then like i created the instrumentals and at one point when we were doing i'm like oh i see what you're doing this is like mm -hmm. a little folk story folk opera and he's like oh god got it oh my got it and yeah, that's, the thing is yeah it's i i don't know how else to describe it if you come at it like honestly not trying to like modernize it not trying to you know state you know like create this visual or create this this aesthetic that's dishonest to mm. what it's really about you know you know it's not about like honoring these people it's about bringing them to life you know no people is perfect at all that's you know that to me is not art's much more complicated than that mm. so it's like bringing this to life is not just honoring it's like it's an important culture, you know, it's a very complicated culture. It has a lot of different influences. And know. I think, um, I, I think, I think for me, I totally agree with all of that. Like, and on top of all of that, like you just can't sing it if you haven't lived it or if it hasn't been a part of your life. Like I don't, none of mm. these songs, I didn't choose any song that was on the album that I don't want to sing or that I don't usually sing around the house. Um, here in Texas, my parents live out in the country. And, and I, since I've been back home, I've been back home for a year now, um, 2026, 20, and just really getting to understand my family history for myself and understanding that my ancestors were enslaved, you know, on, only about 100 years ago here in the state. And that's, I think, that's for me when I, like I said, when I look at the history, that's when the performative aspect goes away for me. It's like, it's very serious especially because with songs like these, they were never recorded usually. I mean, we have a lot of times with the songs that I, that we have selected, there will be like one or two recordings um, by this, you know, folk ways or something like that. But I, yeah, that's 
for me, it was really important to document some of these ideas that were going on. Um, and I, yeah, I guess that's how it can come across genuine, but I, I was really conflicted about doing this project because I'm not really a folk musician. I'm not a folk artist. I don't think I am. Um, but I'm so compelled by the storytelling of folk music. And like Kevin mentioned, I, I arranged a, lot, a few of the songs in the way that I would almost an opera in the, the way that it has like a, an overture, a first act intermission, yeah. almost second act. And then like, you know, grand finale, that's kind of how I thought about a lot of these songs that are um, filled with stories that are very simple but extremely complex if you really want to dive in into like filling in the gaps between each stanza. Um. Yeah. And like, <clears throat> I think like, per, uh, again, going back to like this idea of performance practice being such a loaded mm -hmm. thing and, and Kevin brings up like Baroque music, which is probably the first culprit of this, <laughs> but like, um, it became about like a research with no intent of like where the music came from for a lot of the places that were doing it. So you ended up with a bunch of experts that would tell you the correct way to start a trill in each era, but like no real understanding of like at the end of the day, what was that era trying to express yeah. to its own people and not just to the future or not just to like some academic uh curiosity and that's mm -hmm. like hugely important to say that you you and and what kevin just said like i really love that this idea that you do it because you're trying to bring this th th this thing back in what it is and not what it was as a museum piece or like as or, a uh yeah. and that's hugely difficult because it's uh it's like how do you avoid orthodoxy while also respecting like the essence of something because there's a difference between like respecting a tradition and then being very orthodox about yeah, the absolutely. immovability of it mm. um so yeah i don't know if you guys have anything to say about like traversing that line between like mm. you yeah know, be respecting something and then becoming such a like dick about it that, that you can't like be flexible to enjoy it you know well i i think you know the spirit just a side note the spirit of uh, performance practice movement of you know medieval through mm -hmm. you know classical um when we think of playing on period instruments the spirit of the music that that movement um since the six 1960s like is exactly that same idealistic idea yeah and it's super obvious course. with like the early yeah. the early people yeah. of that movement like gardener and all the like er Absolutely. early people but anyway sorry oh yeah it, it certainly evolved and like you know, there's still people that I listen to that's like, oh my gosh, they've found this way. Just like an actor studies the text, but then brings that text to life, like embodies the character. You know, there are musicians who are doing that and there are countless today still bringing that fervor. Movement's grown, obviously. And um, I mean, maybe I'm like kicking myself in the foot here, but or what is the saying? Shooting Something yourself like, in the shooting, foot. Shooting, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, um, you can be less violent about it. You can just barely you, kick yourself in the foot. Um, yeah, I'm just <laughs> kicking myself in the foot with this one. Um, you know, I think there's, like, say, in the opera world, uh, most Baroque operas that are done today are done in some entirely different setting. 
um, with some entirely different avant-garde stage design. I think there's a pressure that we need to do this to um, bring in audience or make it appealing or make it relate. And I honestly just haven't seen too many of those productions like that are really good, but maybe that's not because that's because it's totally outside my taste. So I think if you're trying to modernize something very intentionally, you know, that's not an artistic endeavor. Like that's, you know, not what our artistic endeavors are. That's a intellectual or that's well, it's an a aesthetic. It's an aesthetic, aesthetic ag agenda, you know, and when you come in mm. with something with agenda, yeah. that's a very yeah. dangerous word because it's, it's not honest. It's not organic. Um, and, but that's just a side note. Cause that, I love that. That's, I feel like our goal as musicians, like how do we traverse that line of like learning the technical aspects, but then like embodying it so that the the listener the audience just has this real experience of something communicative mm -hmm. um i don't know that's what i think about and then from there it's just a lot of sweat and work you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know mm -hmm. and you're really trying to get what you're doing to match yeah. what your vision is i don't know yeah i uh I know exactly what you mean. I mean, it, it's a hard line to traverse as the well as well. Just to go back to opera for a second, because opera is so married to aesthetics. But I totally understand what you're saying. Like, if your aesthetics go first instead of like what you're trying to get out of it. So, like, what is yeah. it, what am I trying to get out of handle? Like, for as an example, yeah. Versus what do I want it to look like, and what music will fit what I want it to look like. Uh, that's the part where it gets dishonest. I mean, yeah, it's very strange. But like, yeah. but like in the case that what I love about like folk music, and I I will be honest, like I'm not as married to American folk music as I am to other folk musics. Um, oh. But it is a huge passion, like, of mine with like in because I'm from Colombia, I'm from Latin America, so like, I yeah. I have always loved. Uh, folk music from both Spain and Latin America and per and per well Iran yeah. Persian music but like what's so interesting and difficult to get out of them um that I I have always marveled at is when people try to bring it to like a popular place or a big stage it's like cool for a while but then you just want to go back to like a dude with a guitar you know what I mean <laughs> And a singer mm -hmm. and like mm -hmm. something so basic, Absolutely. like like Cuban son, when you find it in its essence, it's like a dude with like a very basic percussion set, maybe mm -hmm. a mm -hmm. percussionist and a, I mean, a, a guitar guitarist and a singer and maybe one trumpet, you know, something yes. like that. And there's something that 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 texture is so hard to get authentically. And that was another thing that I was kind of surprised. I hope you don't take that in the wrong way, but I was surprised based on your biographies that it sounded so authentic. Uh, oh, wow. wow. Oh, that's like your, that's, that's a, a big compliment. compliment. Thank you. Compliment. Thank you. <laughs> so we, uh, that was a big part of, I mean, something I was really paranoid about is that I didn't want it to sound like too fresh or like poppy or like too, I can't think of the word, but I, I, I mean, we, I don't know, Kevin, if it's even worth talking about what we did with Frazier in the studio, but like, I think we put record sounds over yeah. um, the recording and like, 
I think he distorted the sound a little bit. Um, the idea was to have it sound like it's coming out of some like, haunted gramophone, to be honest. Uh, yeah. Um, but it um, didn't sound kitschy. Like, I just want to be good. clear for people that haven't heard it. Like, it, it sounded like authentic people doing this music in a modern world, which is like kind of, in my opinion, the goal of like a performance correct thing. It's not supposed to sound like, oh, I just took a trip back in time. It's supposed to be like, oh, mm. I, if, if I were in the room, this is what it would have been like. Yes. Uh, now, <laughs> if that yeah. makes yes. any sense. Yeah, yeah oh, for that's, sure. That's really important to me to keep in mind as an artist, especially as an artist that usually is focused on like art forms that were created centuries before I came along. Like it's important to understand that like it just has to be relevant in some way to the people who are listening today who are alive on earth who have heard all different kinds of music since this art form was originally formed um it has to be informed by like something that people are familiar with um otherwise it, it just there really is no point in doing it unless you are i guess um i don't know an, an encyclopedia or something like <laughs> yeah I think a lot of musicians too um, are governed by like a set of rules for music making. Yes. And you know, yeah. And when you're young and training and all that, you know, rules are good. You know, you have to like develop range and develop um, just a kind of physical like coordination and expertise. You know, just to you know get you know like from your head your hands or whatever your instrument is um and but you know that's like you're not even at step one yet you know step one is when you are comfortable with yourself as an artist range wise and then you're like okay let me go apply that let me go apply those say colors to the canvas you know um so you know or um, and, uh, yeah. Sorry if you don't mind, Kevin. No, I, just, I think it's like some for me. It's about about almost being if finding out whether or not I am uncomfortable enough with myself to to try other things. Because I find mm -hmm. that when I start getting comfortable in my practice, whatever it might be, that's when I don't know. I'm kind of like just coasting, or I things are. That. I'm just doing things because someone told me, and somehow I'm still doing it, yeah. but I don't really like it. Um, but yeah, I just want to yeah. Well, but beyond a personal yeah. perspective, because I think a lot of us struggle with this, some more than others, I do think that there's like a growing breed of artists, which is like super like disheartening. I've, I've met more more people. I've met more people in my time as a trumpet player personally that are have no business being like artists, even though they're good musicians, like as in a in a technical role. Mm -hmm. then I have like people that I'm like, wow, you're, you're getting exactly what you guys are talking about. Like, like, mm -hmm. you know, this, we're just the tool to create what's like important and blah, blah, blah. But to that point, like, I want to ask you, like, what do you, there's something that I've been thinking about a lot and I just want to get your thoughts on, but like, what do you think the role or, or the relationship between artists and audience is ideally, or, or what is, you know, what is that relationship supposed to look like? Um, or even between the artist and the work he or she creates, you know? I don't know if you guys have any thought about that. Because I think that that's um, kind of what links it. 
Yeah, I do have a few thoughts about that. Um, I mean, I think in school, you are taught so much to think about the audience. That's all that matters. And that's the only reason why you perform, at least that's how I came up. Um, I started doing theater when I think actors are even, I think just from going from like theater training to music, I think actors are even, are thought of to, are thought to think of, of the, the audience more than musicians, almost in terms of connecting with them and coming out of their, you can go see a jazz con like concert and all the musicians will have their eyes closed the entire time. Um, but, you know, um, so I, I think I, what I've been trying to do lately is not think about the audience. Um, and that's when I, I find that the most sincere pro like things surface for me. Um, I spend so much time like thinking about, okay, well, if, if I'm in the city, what kind of audience will, will be there? How old will they be? And will they know these songs if I choose them? And will, you know, are there going to be gay people or straight people? Or will these be, will these people be white or black? Like that kind of determines what kind of rep I'm doing. I, I think, I think as an artist, I just want to be, hopefully, I think all of us should be our most sincere selves and whatever it is we're trying to communicate. And then eventually your the audience will come and you won't have to um, sacrifice or make adjustments or anything for for them it will be you know yeah sincere i guess yeah and, I, and love that. I i agree with that and that's like one of that's one level of it so like make the art that you're convinced about because then the audience will be convinced too i'm, I'm a huge advocate of that like uh yeah this whole idea of like programming with a specific people in mind is just insane to me it's like they, they, mm -hmm. you're not gonna serve anyone but like even going a little deeper i guess because then there's i have like a there's like a dividing line there as far as like why we would want to do that like why do you want to be so into what you're doing that the audience gets into it and to me it comes down to like either you're doing it for you which usually yields very weird results or you're doing it because you value the people you're giving something to. It's kind of like an honesty thing. Mm. It's like, I respect your time and the fact that you came out to the show, so I'm not going to serve you some bullshit. <laughs> I'm going to give you what I care about, and I'm going to do that to the highest possible, you know, not just ability, but like transmission of that. So like, I, I, I'm going to transmit as much of what I need to transmit to you as i can does that make sense yes that that yeah that's so beautiful and that 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 approach gives me a lot of anxiety unfortunately because <laughs> uh, it just puts so much especially when i'm about to go on and perform it just puts so much on my 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 shoulders i guess i don't know my or my back um i really try to think of it more as like how much can i give to the form how much can i give to myself and my own commitment to excellence and then hopefully the audience will meet me there but if if i go in trying to yeah i guess make the audience feel like i'm worth their time or like the project is worth their attention uh, i don't i i get anxious I and mean, i do i do want to figure out ways other ways to think about it though well i th I, I think what i was sorry kevin i feel like you have something to say and i keep cutting off but like oh no <laughs> I, I love this i'm listening I, I think it's like a two two part thing here because I, I think what we're we're like talking we're saying the same thing, but like I think talking 
across each other for oh, a second. So, so, so let so. me dissect it. it. Like, I agree with you. It's like, I'm going to give all of this to the art form and to myself and be honest, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. And what I'm trying to say is like the opposite of what I think I made you understand. Like, it should never be like, how am I going to be perceived by these people? But it's more like, if I'm honest about it, mm-hmm. uh, these people will get it. What I'm trying to add to that is like, I'm trying to ask what the reason for doing that is other than like pure narcissism of saying like, well, I'm going to do it for me because I feel like the connecting part is like, I do this because this matters so much that the people out there need to feel it the way I feel it. Do you Mm. see what I mean? Like, Mm. like we still serve the role for that audience. It's just, we're deciding that we commit to it so fully that that's the best way of, that audience getting something out of it does that make sense yes yes and i that's so hard to achieve but like honestly like i think Mm -hmm. people get caught somewhere in the middle they they like nail it for themselves but then there's a little bit of dishonesty in that so the audience doesn't feel connected to it or vice versa like you were saying they nail it for the audience in which case they the the artist themselves doesn't have any connection to what they're doing they're just kind of like going through the motions of excellence or or something Mm. like that um and yeah. I understand that it's different when you're doing a recording project. So, like, in some also ways, it's different. easier to tweak what you're... Tr- it's hard to get in the booth, but it's easier to tweak what you wanted out of it. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Do you guys perform this music live as well, like, as part of, of your project? Or are there plans to do it? That's next up, yeah. I know so it's we, been COVID, we, so... You know, we have not yeah. performed any of these songs live yet. Yeah. Um, that's that's what we're working on now. Um, we're hoping to do like sort of a lecture concert thing um, where we kind of zone in a little bit more on like some of the ideas we've been exploring and um, and then do like a little bit of music at the end, hopefully. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have anything else to say, Kevin? I wanted to get into something else, but if you have anything. Oh, yeah. I just, yeah. I mean, your question really hits on why art, you know, why art? in the first place and like you know at eight years old i knew i wanted to be an artist a musician i have no clue why Mm -hmm. it's like it's a totally non-essential thing to do just in terms of the you know the necessities of the world we have to you know eat and you know drink yeah i I know we like to say that art is essential because it is like from a very human perspective people like all cultures make art but you're right. Like, like yeah. eating, eating is more important. It's a privilege yeah, to right. spend that much it, time on. It's a, on it's a total like privilege. Yeah, and it's um, you you know there have been artists since the beginning of time, um, but to to want to do something like this is a very bold decision, you know. And um, I don't know what possessed me, like why, but it's just who I am. I think we all like share that, you know. Anyone who's just fully in this it's just we have this drive to do it um and so people you know it's like how do i put it you know art is like every art is everywhere you know people are constantly you know watching movies and new series and listening to music and you know the pandemic especially showed that like what would like imagine the pandemic the whole world's in lockdown like what would they do you know we need something to fill that time but it's it's more than that we have this desperate need to experience 
things of meaning and you know we as artists are there to um you know make that and there's definitely a big ethical question in what you make because art can be negative and it could also be positive in how it contributes to society there you know i think there's a lot of ways to be um very clearly negative in what you do artistically and, and things that are you know pretty positive um so you know i think you know i i i loved working with joshua because i think we both just shared this kind of ethical um imperative in what we were doing as artists um and we both felt it just important to make this music in in a moving way basically and i suppose that's what we we're gonna you know aim to do as performers too in a live setting yeah, it's it's brilliant project, and uh, I want to transition to something that might be a little yeah, hard to talk about. So, like, if anyone doesn't want to talk about it, you can also tell me to go screw myself. I'm just kind of interested oh, wow. from the point of view of like not being from here. So, like, I analyze it as an outsider, uh, both within and without. Right, uh, yeah. Joshua. I know you have to leave at like soon, right? Oh no, it's fine. What time okay. is it? I'll, yeah, like I'll... five five forty. Okay, great. So we have some time. So one thing you mentioned early on in our discussion was <clears throat> like the constant pull, especially I feel like at a university level and particularly these, these centers of art of mm -hmm. having certain types of people, be it with, with black artists, with spirituals or Latino artists with different types of specific things that we get locked in to like what kind of, defines folklore for our people so to speak and mm. i i thought it was very powerful what you just said like uh yeah you were constantly being pushed to do like spirituals but you don't actually come from there i mean you're talking about like eight generations of texans and mm -hmm. uh it's it's fundamentally a different american culture there in some ways um mm. so like talk to me about like not necessarily how that felt but like what was that like dichotomy like or or you know how how did you live that in the in the performance landscape i mean in opera especially we see it all the time i mean i remember terence blanchard was commissioned to write an opera for the met yes. uh and I, I think it was supposed bones. to come out this year right and yes, this fall they were gonna pair it with porgy and bess <laughs> and oh I, I just kept thinking like oh i just kept thinking like first of all get a researcher because there were plenty of like black composers in the early part of the 20th century that came from uh the dvorak school he had taught a lot of them and they built a lot of beautiful actually operas and and symphonies and there's yes. a lot of, of stuff yes. there and just mm -hmm. because your researchers are kind of not good enough or you hired the wrong type of people that's not that's not smart so like i'm very interested in the fact that you were gravitating towards this kind of folk music because i feel like like i said i think ethnic minorities for this country keep getting like boxed into more and more into like what it's supposed to be and like how limited that can be but it comes from a place of kind of like the thin veneer of research considering mm. how rich the history of different ethnic minorities has been not just in this country but around the world I mean, yeah. and, and just to clarify, like, it's not just in the United States. You see this in Latin America a lot, too. It's like, uh, oh, you're from this country. You should do an album of this. And it's like, well, yeah. you know, that country has, like, a lot of mm -hmm. varieties mm -hmm. of, of, mm -hmm. of different ethnic musics. And, like, 
So anyway, I was just very uh, interested because you you mentioned it. So I don't know if you want to talk about that. Oh, if you don't, we don't have to. Yeah, sure. I mean, I mean, you said so many great things about it. I just, um, well, I, I want to clarify. I do, I do um, feel connected to spirituals, um, obviously for many reasons. But I, I, what I'm really trying to get at is that I just believe that there's so much more, which, which is what you're saying. Um, I, and that's that's what I mean. I, I went to two HBCUs before I wound up at the new school, and um, at most HBCU classical music programs, they, like I said, make you um, do all the other things from the canon, European, Western classical music, and then you do your spirituals. But I was so frustrated even when I was in these programs that that we were never encouraged to um, to look at songs like the like this that predated spirituals. Um, and I, I don't know, I, I guess it's not much deeper than I really just want to know what else, what's more, like what, what more, what else was there? Because there was, there was so much. Um, I'm I actually, another motivation behind this project was to figure out how I could pay tribute to um, black folk singers who were queer, but I, I couldn't even find, I mean, I, I'm yeah, sure at some point few, it gets really like, hard to get into that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and which is another reason why I was like, well, yeah, now I have to do this because there's not enough um, from what I know. Um, and that's, I think that's one thing that I want to be known for as an artist is like an artist who's like, uh, like always excavating the past and like, like picking up stones that people have just like ignored for years and like looking underneath and figuring out like, hmm, how can I make this? makes sense for me today, I guess, or makes sense out of it today. Yeah, that's, I mean, this, is a, this might be a question also for Kevin, like, how, <laughs> I'm going to go right at this, how uh, lacking do you find music research today compared to, like, other areas of research in academia? Like, because I've run into a lot of, like, people <laughs> that get a doctorate and are supposed to be, like, experts, and then they, like, curate a concert, and it seems like it's the same thing we could have done a year ago. It's just that they came up with, like, a tidbit. And it's very rare to find somebody like the two of you, and it usually doesn't come from the people that, are like, have PhDs, but, like, mm. uh, that that are actually getting in there and just out of sheer curiosity, exactly what you just said, Joshua, like turning the stone that nobody has turned yet uh, mm -hmm, for mm -hmm. a couple of centuries or yeah. decades. I think a, there's a big divide between scholarship and performance, you know, and um, that, that connection um, as a classical musician was something that I was interested in from pretty early on as a teenager. You know, I would just even just your, you know, whiffs of it, I'd be like, you know, isn't that what you should be doing and really looking into it. And, and then I learned more about it in college, because I got to work with, uh, you know, professors, and especially uh, my mentor, who I still work with, Mark Bailey, um, who's a scholar performer, and just this idea of the scholar performer, and that applying and the folk, the, the, the field of folk musicians today, they're scholar performers, you know, like Chris Tile, you know, on the mandolin. Mm. He's a scholar performer. These guys. Mm. Um, so, uh, yeah, um, 
there's a divide though that i think that's why we notice that in performers and in the academy um people who get their phds um can too often in their research be very separated from what that actually means for the reality of the art form and the people in conservatory um there's no encouragement for truly original uh, research that informs the way they program music and then also the way that they perform. Um, but there's certainly a lot of it in the music world. Um, in, in my experience, perhaps a lot of it is outside the classical world. Um, mm. I don't know how to, uh, yeah, Joshua, you're, you know, we're both like, this idea of bringing musicology together with performance is something we're both obsessed about and so mm -hmm. it's not something i'm obsessed about but also like very weary of and like it's mm -hmm. no offense but white people have done that to um music by colored people for a long time mm -hmm. jazz is like a great example of how it's been taking something that was like come out of slavery and church and field singing and all of a sudden well and then even like you know, when jazz first came out, white people condemned it and called it the devil's music. And now it's something that you go see at like a fancy gallery and everyone's yeah. wearing very nice clothes and sitting with stiff as a board while the singer is like scatting their ass off. Um, you know, I, I'm very sensitive to that, which is why I didn't, why I, I just, I don't want to wait for permission from like schools or programs to do like these sorts of projects because I feel like it almost taints it in a way um, just depending on how you go about it, but um, and and on the other on the, on the sorry on the other hand, we do need like the scholars. We do need people to document this work and to to study it and do research on it. Um, but I think we also need the people who um, understand that it's it's hmm, these forms that we're talking about, especially American folk music and jazz. It comes out of struggle. And it comes out of like disadvantage and a lot of um, hardship. So, yeah, that that's something that I'm always kind of fighting with. I I don't know if I want to go back to school and study music again, but um, that's kind of what's keeping me away from going back to school. Is that I don't I don't know how I feel about studying something like folk music or jazz or anything like that in a academic setting. Yeah, I I think musicians don't need permission of teachers or conservatories to pursue what they're aesthetically interested in doing um mm -hmm. and but most teachers will really restrict you in my experience yeah teachers will restrict i i mean i didn't go to graduate school just because i wanted to get started and just make music and make music in the way that i was pursuing it um and I didn't go to conservatory. I went to Yale as a liberal arts degree and studied music and uh, took, you know, private lessons with, uh, you know, a teacher outside Yale, actually, you know, Christopher Ladd, who's at NEMC. And I just, you know, went to Hartford. So I had like my own little, uh, you know, combination of things. And I think, you know, musicians shouldn't be afraid to just pursue what they believe to be right for them um and i get it there's obviously the practical concerns if you want to teach in a college you know you need uh, degrees and if that's what you're passionate about doing you should pursue it 
Um, but at the same time, every musician or every artist has the things they do creatively that have nothing to do with uh, making a living. And mm, you yes. should pursue those passionately. That's the reason, you know, you got in this in the first place, you know. I, mm -hmm. I mean, I will say there's something different. <clears throat> I mean, you will maybe have something to say about this, Kevin. Um, maybe not. Just because it's Yale and it's like such a renowned research place in other fields. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Uh, similarly, I, I like when I went to McGill University, they're like very well known in, in many other fields for, for mm -hmm. research. And, you know, I yeah. went for music, which was completely different. Right. Yeah. Uh, and one of the nice things about that is I was taking classes outside of the music school, kind of like what you were saying, Kevin, and, yeah. and like spending time with like people in their English department who were both like so passionate about literature, yeah. but were also researching it in out of passion and they were also like they had a they seemed to have like a way different level of expertise about what they were talking about than like mm -hmm. my music professors who had master's degrees mm -hmm. in musicology or something mm -hmm. and yeah. and like these english teachers would talk to me about like chaucer or milton or uh you know in the spanish literature part about cervantes or something and it was alive it was like mm. we research this because it's like vibrant and let me show you why it's vibrant and the research mm -hmm. made it better similarly mm -hmm. like when i would go to museums like the met or something like like a good one like the mm -hmm. one of the top ones in the united states like the curators put you through a journey i mean i still mm -hmm. remember vividly going to a met museum uh um exhibition that was about matisse where mm -hmm. what they had done was they had gone around all the museums in the world and kind of collected uh, his studies. So like mm -hmm. it would be like a hand study culminating in the final piece. So like all mm -hmm. the studies towards a piece. And uh -huh. what you would see was his process. It would like start with the perfect hand and then, you know, he'd start like contorting it and then it would go like really crazy and then less crazy and then like end up in the painting. And it was like, wow like somebody went out and curated this and, and i every time i go to museums i feel like they like with a good curator it's like wow this made me make connections mm -hmm. i could not have made without this curator and yes. i feel like music has kind of not had that maybe they've like thrown mm -hmm. away their best researchers but like even in orchestras for example it's a good example but it's not just orchestras you can see it in like even the way winton curates jazz at lincoln center which is kind of uh, it's it, he's not the type of researcher we're talking about. Like, if if the Met, for example, as an opera house, had like an incredible researcher, the way that mm -hmm. you have like P people that go through PhD things at art school for to be like an art historian, then they would make these programs that might make no sense on paper, but then like revitalize a piece like yeah oh, they definitely wouldn't do poor game best like two years in a row or, you know. yeah or or they would <laughs> say like we're pairing this beethoven with this uh, obscure uh whatever composer and the link between them is this research and we would all be like whoa like i had never thought about that but instead what we get is like that composer's french this other composer's french and this piece has a saxophone Mm. bam and it's like okay well that and you see that with with like a lot of facets of of i just think music research has become i it's been self-perpetuating partially because of what you just said kevin it's like people who are don't aren't quite academics go and get doctorates be, they, they don't have an academic tinge in their body but they go get a doctorate because the real people that have academic ting, like mm. uh, tinglings like the two of you are like 
well, screw that. I want to just go make what I want to make. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so all these people get a doctorate yeah. because they couldn't, they don't know what to do. And then they get hired by universities. And then, you know, and then it, it becomes teach, like, yeah. And they bring up a whole generation of yeah. mediocrity. Yes, and so you and don't on. have like great researchers in music, like uh, Joseph Horowitz or somebody like that teaching mm -hmm. at a major university where like, he's the type of guy that like his books are fascinating because he's tracing incredible super well-researched narratives that make you go like like yeah, his latest book on on Dvorak and like spiritual where he's kind of like saying like it's not a it's not what you think it is and he shows like how much he had seen America as an outsider and said like that's where you're gonna get America like mm. that is if you want a future into like American classical music like that's it and you know he tried to make his own obviously from an outside perspective that's whatever but what what joseph horowitz is showing is like he educated all these like black musicians mm. that nobody would educate and they mm. built a repertoire and then his point in a way in that book is kind of saying like america really fucked up because they looked at george gershwin who had actually sort of internalized that and instead mm. of favoring george gershwin they went and favored aaron copeland who mm. was like a a movie composer essentially you know and that's what we consider the american sound and you know his whole point is like you guys fucked up the american sound was somewhere else that mm, you guys yes. thought was too kitsch but it wasn't it was just right anyway but that's his conclusion i'm not trying to give it value but what i'm trying to say is like yes we need more of that like a dude who's so curious he just keeps writing books and researching all these obscure connections mm -hmm. badass and i feel the same like when i listen to a project like you guys it's like Man, like, I wish these were the people we were, like, teaching people how to be, mm -hmm. like, researchers. I know you guys are young or whatever, but that's exactly what we don't do in academia. I mean, like, most people mm -hmm. with doctorates in music are would be, like, laughed at if they were trying to get, like, a PhD in physics where you have to have, like, original research and yeah. be a hyper nerd mm -hmm. and, like, really get in the weeds. And most of them, like, write a paper about something that there's already 18 papers about. Um, that doesn't really affect the way we think about things, even in our field. Uh, yeah. So, you know, I, I, I just, yeah, you guys have mm. given me clarity in thinking about it. I had never thought about it. It's wow. like the people like you guys that are like, mm. I don't, don't take this the wrong way, but cool nerds uh, are in the weeds actually trying to be so curious that you're making interesting things happen. Um, oh my god well oh, thank you one of these universities <laughs> to give us tenure because <laughs> <laughs> this is all very cool and the thing we're not talking about which this is all very cool but there's no money there's no money there's no money yeah so um the thing is also that i'm i'm interested in figuring out in my lifetime is like doing this beautiful interesting dissimilar work but also figuring out how to be paid for it mm -hmm. in in ways that are fair i think um, and I think that's coming. That That is definitely come. I feel like we're in a renaissance right now, artistic renaissance in this country, and especially for people of color. Um, um, I'm a librettist, and it's only been now that in the past five years that librettists have been given recognition for <laughs> the credit that they've, you know, given in, in like opera, I guess. Um, but yeah, I think, I'm so sorry, I lost my train of thought, but Yes, tenure is what we need. Tenure and <laughs> more opportunities with funding and things like that. But I, I'm pretty encouraged. We have a, quite a few things coming up that make me feel like this is really gonna um, at least be the be a great opportunity 
um, for another opportunity, at least. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's really hard because it's like you guys have made something really cool. And I often wonder, like, going back to, like, where these things can live, kind of, kind of to your mm. point, Joshua, like, how can you turn this into profitable thing without it being about the profit but you know like mm -hmm. uh and i wonder if it has something to do with like finding the correct space and the correct type of people to go for it i mean i mean my argument with this is always yes. like if a bunch of weird people will pay hundreds and hundreds of dollars to go to burning man and be like without water and clothes and soap for like three weeks <laughs> and it's profitable like there has to maybe we're just reaching oh, the yes, wrong people you know oh, no no that, that's what i i I mean, that's how I think we save a, a lot of American art forms. I, I mean, like opera, when it was, it, when opera was first invented, people were sniffing salts in the, the box and drunk on champagne and probably having sex in the box. And like, you know, before the party, after, like it wasn't, you know, people were really because that it was party time. And like, you know, honestly, like I would love the day when like Kevin and I could do a show and like everyone could bring a blunt or something or like whatever their thing was. <laughs> and then like, that's how you get people to like, want to, I guess, do things out of their comfort zone, I guess. I mean, not all the time, but like, just like you said, like, a, if Burning Man is a great example, because I think like, if you do give people um, a new experience, but also make it slightly familiar in some ways and like that's a, a recipe for success i think yeah i <laughs> yeah i there and there's people that have traversed this line more so than people imagine uh mm -hmm. i mean like mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it was always said to me by uh, the principal trumpet of the la phil from the 70s i mean he died a couple of years back but he used to run into Miles Davis at the Phil all the time with mm -hmm. with a score to what they were playing under his arm. Like he would show oh, up wow. for the complicated things. He would show up for like Rite of Spring with a score and and mm. and it's like, yeah, but he's here's like the coolest cat ever. Like <laughs> going to the Phil at, or or like the other one that's alive is like Paul Simon, mm -hmm. uh, like famously from musicians that work with him that I know in, a number of like he's insanely knowledgeable about a bunch of yeah. things it was it was like a, a fact kind of missed by people but when they auctioned off harry parch's uh microtonal organ paul simon bought it like it's oh, wow i didn't know that it, it's pretty interesting that like maybe we're yeah. just like people like you guys i i will encourage you when you start playing this stuff live like you should take this to like where you think it belongs mm. i love that mm -hmm. If I can mm. say that, I don't know. That's great advice. No, that's great. Mm. Absolutely. It's, and, I honestly and, like hearing it. I didn't know what I was getting into. I know Kevin from like a long time ago, and mm -hmm. I know you're badass. But like, I was honestly <laughs> just shocked. I was like, "Wow, this is like really, really cool." Like, mm. um, really oh, cool. Oh, thank you. Well, where where do you see it, Nicholas? If if you don't mind, because yeah. we're taking a we're taking a. And Korean surveys and, and... I, I think this could live in the same space that okay so there used to be a club here that sadly closed down in LA it was called the Blue Whale um, mm. this place and I hope something comes and replaces it but this is what I'm imagining this place was a place that it, they made a very conscious decision it was a jazz club and they made a very conscious decision they were like our role is not to bring out like 
the huge international jazz artist. Like I'm, they had no interest in bringing in Chick Corea or or Winton. Not because they didn't love them. It was just like that's there's places for those people to inhabit. Yes, they can go to the Blue Note. They can go to all these places. Um, and they created this space for like up and coming artists. And I don't mean by that like undiscovered. They were like important artists in the LA area to come and experiment and like feel good about whatever you know and it was like if you want to talk in the back you can talk in the back but there's also going to be a serious space for music to be you guys need to find something like like i think this play this this music could live very well at a space that's like more about that kind of music not necessarily jazz but like a kind of music that people are there like you said <laughs> maybe it's not a blunt but like with a drink uh -huh. in their hand yeah but those people are more open to experimentation than we give them credit for, you yes. know? Uh, somebody that listens to progressive metal can totally take what you did, you know? <laughs> I think this music can live in so many different places. Yeah. And I think the, the idea, like, especially as musicians, context is very important because our art form requires uh, a certain... A, a minimal amount of background no noise like you can't have like too much blaring you know yeah, yeah. for music right it's a yeah. sound thing um but this can live in a lot of places and you know context is important um but it's always worth trying to introduce a new crowd to something they totally haven't heard before and you don't like necessarily change it you just do your thing when you're yeah. performing and you see how they respond. And um, I don't know, I'm very like, just free flowing and uh, interested in mm, the different yeah. contexts and what happens. You know, um, we're not, uh, you know, uh, neurosurgeons. So that life and death is not on the table with the performance, which is exactly. a good thing. Um, and you just give it a shot and see what happens. And I always like admired artists who just have this attitude, like, let's go make it, let's go make it do it see what happens. People are moved. Let's go make the next thing. Let's do that. And, and you learn and you keep like developing and like, and that whole thing is very exciting for me and what we're doing as a duo. And I think, you know, another thing because folk music, um, has its places. There are major folk festivals around the country mm -hmm. still. Yes. Um, but another place it can live is through interdisciplinary kind of collaborations too. Absolutely. And that's just a way you bring it to new people. And that's really interesting too. bring it to people who love folk music. But then like, I always loved bringing things like people have never heard before. And cause they're fresh. They're just totally fresh. They respond without any preconceived uh, sounds in their head. So I think it's, it's versatile. Um, but I, it definitely has that kind of, ideal utopic context of oh that experience and people being engaged on every note you know well i hope mm -hmm. you guys find it and thanks yeah, it's fantastic <laughs> Thank you. and you know yeah anything anything else to say or anything no thank you for this this is i've had so many thoughts i have sticky notes full of notes so I'm gonna <laughs> visit, but this is very um a little a lot deeper than i thought it was going to be yeah, this um, is a thrill, of course. Yeah. Oh, I'm glad yeah, we can is, do more of these later, like separately or together. I I really Excellent. enjoyed meeting you, Joshua and Kevin. It's Likewise. great to reconnect, Likewise. and I would really yeah. like to do another one. Perfect. You guys are awesome. <laughs> okay. Congrats on your project. It's really really cool. Thank you. 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 Thank you
Thank you so Thank much. You. It really means means a lot. All right, guys. I'll see you soon. See you later. Bye. Talk to you soon. Bye.